And yeah, James was well known for being involved with seances, crazy, <laughs> weird, mystical shit. Most uh, renowned philosopher uh, and psychologist at Harvard in the early 20th century was also like doing seances and shit. Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to be jumping into um, an essay by William James called The Will to Believe. And what would you say? What's the one-minute elevator pitch for this essay troy uh one minute elevator pitch be something like um or here's how i like to kind of boil it down uh in a way that's interesting and will catch people's attention um is it more important to avoid error or more important to be open to truth 10 second elevator pitch yeah that's good i mean that's how you get the executives in the elevator right and then you get their attention and then they're like sold Take my money, motherfucker. Make your show. So yeah, no one that's has a what we're gonna do. An elevator. What is that about? It's like fifteen seconds. Uh, you know those buildings are tall when you're trying to pitch to NBC execs and things like that. And there's a lot of people, so there's a lot of stops. Uh, okay, yeah, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean that's not true either because the buildings in LA aren't that tall. It's not like you're in New York or Shanghai or something like that where you got to go fifty floors up. So. Anyway, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about belief, which I'm actually really excited to talk about because it kind of raised a lot of questions in my mind about the formulation of beliefs themselves, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. I was not expecting that. I didn't really know what to expect going into reading this. Um, From the title, I couldn't really tell exactly what was going to uh, be addressed in this lecture that he gives. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but of course, before we get into that stuff, we got to do a little bit of housekeeping. I want to give you guys a reminder that if you find value in what we're producing and if you want to have access to bonus content, which is bonus episodes, we have a back catalog of all kinds of bonus episodes uh, that you can have access to as well as receive the monthly newsletter and be involved in our Democracy Motherfuckers Club, which is where you get to recommend a topic for a future episode, then go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And you can support us monthly that way. And as I said, get access to all that stuff. And also just so you know, the Democracy Motherfuckers episode is set. It's not this week, as we said we were going to try to get the guest on, but we couldn't get her on. But now we can say it is the wonderful, the fantastic, the psychoanalytically and philosophically astute Isabel Millar, who is going to come on in two episodes' time. So not the next episode, but the following episode. And she's going to be talking with us about the philosophy of psychoanalysis. But fitting as it is, you want to know why she couldn't make it this week, Troy? Why is that? Because she is at the Lacan Ecree conference. Mm. That's a good excuse. So, that's a very good excuse. Prepping for the so, podcast episode, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that will uh, that was your chosen topic for those of you that are our patrons out there that voted in the poll this last run that we did it. So it's the philosophy of psychoanalysis in two weeks' time. And again, if you want 
You didn't like that topic. If you don't like the philosophy of psychoanalysis and you want to fight for something else like the philosophy of social media, which got second place, then you're not a patron, then get your ass over to Patreon and you can hook yourselves up with a little bit of voice in our democracy motherfuckers world. So, yeah, patreon.com slash John. Way to turn anger against us in a way of to like motivate supporting us. I dig that. That's some like straight it, up business strategy right there. Best practice. I was going to say, <laughs> is it a little gross and insidious? <laughs> <laughs> it's very neoliberal of you, man. Yeah, I can't help it, man. You know, we are <laughs> products of our environment and all that shit. I don't know. All right, sick. So let's get this show on the road. The first thing we got to do is the first thing that we do every single week. It's where we start off with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is chapping our hide. So Troy, what's got your cheeks all red? Dude, so this week, man, two areas of uh, extreme interest for me collided in like the weirdest way possible. Um, are you aware of this whole situation between the NBA and China? No. You haven't heard about it? Maybe, but I don't think so. Wow, yeah, people uh, that I know who know nothing about the NBA have heard about this. But um, oh. So the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, um, tweeted out last week or a few days ago, um, a meme or something that had something to the degree of uh, equivalent to support Hong Kong, freedom for all, something like that, um, in response to the Hong Kong protests in uh, mainland China. And um, the historical background here is that China is a massive NBA marketplace. Um, I think it was something like more people in China watched the playoffs last year than in America. Given that there's four times as many people, it's certainly possible, right? Not a greater percentage of uh, Chinese people than American people, but a gross number that was total, uh, that was Mm -hmm. greater. So um, Chinese market's huge uh, for the NBA. The NBA makes a lot of money in that way. And so pissing off the Chinese government, which has Mm -hmm. complete autocratic control over all media um, in the country, is not a great business strategy. and also, you add to this the fact that the Houston Rockets, uh, where you know Darren Morey, the GM for, um, are the most popular team in China um, over the it's, last it's, twenty or so years because Yao Ming was a uh, Houston Rocket back in the nineties, early two thousands. Makes sense. So this kind of set up a firestorm. Um, also, added into the mix the fact that a number of NBA teams are currently in China right now. Um, the Lakers are in Shanghai. Uh, for preseason games, um, adds some more tension to it. Uh, so in response to uh, this whole thing, the Chinese uh, Communist Party released a statement denouncing Mori. Um, the NBA responded, the commissioner of the NBA responded by uh, saying some to the degree of uh, what he said was regrettable, what Mori said was regrettable, but um, NBA players and personnel have freedom of speech and uh, are allowed to speak according to their values. And so we will not um, censor their speech um, in any mm. way. Um, a bit mealy mouth, but actually more than I expected them to say. Mm. Um, and then the Chinese government responded with a really extreme uh, letter saying something like, um, we don't think that uh, questioning national sovereignty is within the scope of free speech. Basically saying something like the NBA should censor its mm. employees if they question um, China and the actions of the Chinese government. So very, very strongly worded letter. Uh, I was surprised by how strongly worded it was. And then they proceeded to cancel 
basically all of the events that are happening in China right now. Um, as far as I know, when this is being, by the time this is being recorded, um, the games are still scheduled to happen, but it doesn't seem likely that they will. So Damn. all the teams that are over there right now will probably end up coming home by the time this episode is released. Although hmm. we'll see what happens there. There are apparently I saw some videos on the internet this morning um, of all the advertisements for the games and of the players uh, in Shanghai are being taken down currently. Um, Whoa. So yeah, it's pretty extreme. Now that said, the reason this is my shitty minute is because this to me just seems like a harbinger of what's, uh, what's going to come. Uh, China is an authoritarian autocratic government. They're committing massive human rights atrocities on the Uyghur population of the country, as well as many other religious and ethnic minorities. Um, the people of Hong Kong were promised that they would remain a semi-autonomous region uh, once the British gave up control of the territory. And China has repeatedly um, lied about that and uh, basically just continued to encroach upon the civil rights and liberties of the people of Hong Kong, which has sparked all these massive protests over the last year or so. Um, and as China becomes more and more powerful economically throughout the world, and I think we've talked about this on this podcast before that, you know, while the U S is playing protectionist, um, uh, you know, baseball with the rest of the world, China's building massive infrastructure, connecting it economically to everywhere else in the, you know, Eastern uh, part of the world. So Hmm. within 50 or so years, China's for sure, seems like going to be the Know, largest economy in the world, largest superpower, most influential country. And China's already exerting its influence on countries outside um, of its borders to the mm-hmm. point where they're basically expecting um, American companies to censor the English speech of their own employees on Twitter where Chinese people can't even <laughs> see it because Twitter's banned in China. Um, so what China's basically asking for is uh, we're, we're going to withhold um economic opportunity from your businesses unless you do what we say. You know, we already know that China's doing this within China, right? Google and mm. every other business that wants to operate in China has to obey its censorship laws, right? And those mm. companies happily do it, right? They do it within China without much question, um, despite the, you know, don't be evil tagline. Now it's going to end up being worldwide, right? Like basically threatening the world economy um, in essence, in order to export its you know, autocratic um, laws and practices. So this just, it kind of frightens me, the idea that this is happening so quickly and so fast and that I expect the NBA will capitulate, right? Publicly, they'll say that, you know, they don't censor the speech of their employees, but privately, you're going to hear a lot of stories that think about how basically just being encouraged, don't say anything or you're going to ruin our business interests. I think Jesus. Doc Rivers today, the coach of the Los Angeles Clippers, is one of the most long-term successful coaches in the NBA. He's definitely an influential voice. He said he gave a speech to his players saying, you have freedom of speech, but you don't have freedom from consequences. And there are consequences of your speech, so think about it before you speak. Which basically Damn. to me sounds like a veiled threat of don't say anything that threatens our business interests. Um, which is exactly what I would expect the NBA to say to its employees and players privately. Um, and the NBA is probably the most, one of the most progressive, you know, businesses and franchises in the country. And you can tell that when things are easy uh, to take a stand on, they'll do it. Right. Um, but when it threatens business interests, it's all of a sudden a different story. And, uh, that should be a lesson. I think that, uh, you expect, um, woke corporations to save the world. Um, they're not going to do it. 
if it threatens their business interests. And it will absolutely capitulate to authoritarian governments if it will save the bottom line for them. Uh, seems to me that we used to think that capitalism and democracy were, you know, had a long-term marriage with one another. Um, I know that the idea of in the 90s with like uh, Bill Clinton's argument for including China into the World Economic um, Forum and stuff was because, you know, liberalizing its economy will eventually liberalize its politics. And it seems like the opposite has happened. <laughs> um, capitalism and democracy are coming apart at the seams. And uh, this just seems like one more step towards that happening on a global scale. Damn. Do we have any idea what monetary impact this has happened? Like, are there numbers or potential speculative uh, revenue losses from uh, China's sense or I don't know, they're censoring or they're canceling of the events? I don't know what that would be. Um, I'm sure by the time we actually know if the games happen or not, we'll we'll figure out what the losses will be. But I'm sure it's already quite a bit because they've canceled all these different events and stuff. Um, and the teams are already out there. So they've had the expense of getting out to China. Um, so yeah, I don't know what it'll be. And it, it depends, I think, on whether or not the NBA capitulates or does something to satisfy the Chinese government. Um, maybe Mori getting fired and then no other team hiring him would satisfy them. I don't know what it would be. Um, but yeah, uh, if they, if more of this stuff happens, which I don't expect it to, um, then yeah, China decides to completely, um, pull all of its, uh, spending, you know, on, uh, basketball related stuff. I would expect the losses would be huge. I don't know what the percentages are, but, um, it would be massive for sure. Hmm. Um, it's a little bit different, but it's related, particularly with that last point where you were discussing the supposed relationship between democracy and capitalism. There are a couple of really good resources that have recently come out, one by Alfredo Sadfilio, who has written on uh, authoritarian neoliberalism, and then Wendy Brown's new book that is called In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. And uh, there's actually a review by someone at the University of Sydney in the political economy department. Uh, by the name of Martin Konings. We talked about him a lot on this show before. I recommended his book, The Emotional Logic of Capitalism, way back in the beginning. But he's a remarkable scholar. But he wrote a review of Wendy Brown's book on the Los Angeles Review of Books called Neoliberalism Against Democracy? Question mark. And then the subtitle is Wendy Brown's In the Ruins of Neoliberalism and the Specter of Fascism. So it's a little bit different because I think uh, they're focusing more on kind of the a nationalist turn that has taken over uh, Western Europe and maybe the United States and um, the UK in uh, some respects. But I would not be surprised if there's um, some connection with things going on in uh, authoritarian China and then maybe just more broadly, again, that the fracturing of that supposed, um, you know, the bedfellows of capitalism and democracy and towards something else, a type of authoritarian capitalism. So uh, interesting stuff to think about, definitely, if you want to check those resources out. Yeah, one interesting fact that I learned this last week that I didn't know before, to, to go with this idea of authoritarian capitalism. Um, you know, the Chinese uh, governmental party is the Communist Party, right? It's the one-party system that exists there. But if you look at, say, Hong Kong, um, they have a legislative uh, group that I think like something like a third of the seats are chosen by the uh, corporate industries. So mm. Hong Kong itself, the, the people um, continually vote for the pro-democracy, you know, anti uh, 
establishment China party. Um, and they, the popular vote always goes for the pro-democracy party. Um, and yet, because the pro-industry uh, seats are always pro-China because of the you know need to satisfy Chinese economic interests, um, the pro-democracy parties never have a majority in their legislative body. And that just reminds me of like, holy shit, that's basically what happens with the electoral college does in America. But they just skip the step and make corporate <laughs> industries directly choose the seats. So it's like, yeah, that's the future, man. <laughs> we'll get rid of the electoral college and replace it with corporate industries um, taking the seats themselves. Yeah. Damn. Not exactly what you think of when you read like the definition of communism on Wikipedia, right? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Damn, dude. Yeah, I I think I saw one tweet from someone saying something, but I just didn't know what it was in reference to, saying something about, you know, a guy makes a comment about Hong Kong protests and millions of dollars are lost. I and now he must have been referencing this ordeal. And then I thought I had heard something else about China flexing its muscles. It may have been something with this, but I just I hadn't been paying attention the last couple of days to uh, the news cycle. So, I well, I wonder if in Australia the bigger news than all that would be that Ben Simmons hit a three pointer. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I was actually going to mention this. <laughs> I, I, I shit you not. I literally was waiting for a time when we could like shift tone a little bit to something with a little bit more lightheartedness, and I was going to be like, "By the way, did you see the three that Ben Simmons hit?" <laughs> <laughs> That I was shit definitely not, more news, more newsworthy than yeah, like the, the end. Uh, of, I was uh, I was just waiting, man, but it just didn't feel right for us to be talking about authoritarian capitalism <laughs> in China and like the specter of authoritarianism, and then to be like, "BC, this Australian dude hit a three. <laughs> it was pretty uh, great. Everyone went nuts. I, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, the whole bench went crazy. Were you watching it live? No, I just saw the the clip. Okay, yeah. Oh gosh, yeah, I love it. All his teammates went crazy and everything. Good for him. I hope if he can develop a shot, man, watch out. Well, he's already great. Yeah, that would be the the next thing. I doubt he does, though. He made one, but his shot looks awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so. Well, good shitty minute, man. That's a a really shitty, shitty minute. There's, like, no fun in that shitty minute. That's just really shitty. It's just depressing. Yeah. Yeah, that's just a downer, man. Damn. you want to jump into this build the believe essay let's do it brother all right so we talked about the empirical uh last time on the show and i think i don't remember the context was but i briefly mentioned the uh uh, william james's famous essay which is first a lecture the will to believe um in part because james considers himself i think the tagline he uses is radical empiricist um we usually group James as being with the American pragmatists, um, but we'll, we'll talk about uh, in what sense he's an empiricist and what his relationship to empiricism is, because I think it's kind of fraught in this little essay. But um, it's a very different idea of empiricism than what uh, Lovenberg was talking about, the what is empirical essay. So I thought it'd be a nice little contrast, as well as being, I think, one of my favorite and most readable philosophical works out there. Um, I usually use this in, in classes um, talking about the nature of belief because it's it's so incredibly readable and has really vivid examples, which, of course, William James is famous for. Uh, so we'll get to some of those examples and, and flesh those out in a bit. But I thought first we should talk a little bit about what James's main point in this essay is. And 
the main idea I think that he's trying to get across, he's trying to argue against a sort of scientific reductionist ideology that exists in the early 20th century when he's writing in America, which says something like, um, uh, there's a epistemologist uh, at the time, uh, who had a famous maxim, uh, Clifford's maxim, I forget his first name, but um, the maxim is something like, it's wrong to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And that was considered sort of an epistemological maxim. You always need to have sufficient evidence justification for believing anything. Um, and it's taking this basically from the um, sort of scientific process of knowledge, right? Where you have to go through a specific method to then justify any conclusions you come to. Yeah, and, does, he, does he clearly describe what would be sufficient evidence? No, I mean, what justification is, is open, right? But it's the idea okay. that there has to be a sufficient justification, whatever okay. that standard ends up being. And that might be different for different areas of knowledge, right? I think even, um, even those who would hold to the more scientific maxim that James is criticizing would say that, that those are somewhat relative, right? But that's okay, okay. as long as there's a sufficient degree of justification. Okay. Um, and James is arguing against just that idea in total, right? He's not even saying, oh, the standard just needs to be lower. No, he's just arguing against the idea that there has to be a standard in the first place. Hmm. Uh, and that sounds kind of crazy, right? Especially for someone who, you know, James is famous for kind of founding the discipline of psychology in America. <laughs> His book, Principles of Psychology, was used as the, the like, number one textbook for psychology uh, courses in the first half of the 20th century, I believe. It's still regarded as a classic in the in the literature. Um, but maybe that's just ammo for people saying psychology isn't science. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so James starts out by making a few distinctions that I think are, are a bit helpful. Now we can get into some of the examples of how this works, I think. Um, James says, beliefs in general are not all created equal. And they affect different people in different ways. And he says, some beliefs are alive and some are dead. Some are living and some are dead. Hmm. Different people. So, and what he means by that, something like they have different impacts on you. They have different weights to you. So for instance, he says for a, for an American um, Christian, Christianity is a live option. And probably so is something like agnosticism or atheism. But it's probably not the case that Hinduism is a live option, right? It's just not something that, that has a, a meaningful, the question doesn't have a meaningful hold. On them right but for mm. someone who grows up in india hinduism or whatever its opposite whatever the sort of opposing force may be is the, are the live options right so different things have different sort of holds on you in terms of um, being options for your belief and some things just don't at all mm. then there's a distinction between forced and avoidable beliefs so forced beliefs would be things that you have to choose right making a refusal to choose is impossible and avoidable um, options are things that you don't really have to make a choice on, right? You can delay them. So for instance, if it's, uh, if you think it might be raining outside, you have the choice of whether or not to grab an umbrella or not grab an umbrella, but you kind of have to choose, right? Whereas if right. you live in the middle of the summer and it's totally sunny and there's not even a thought about it raining, that's the thing you can just, you know, push off to another time. There's no need to even think about it, right? So again, different things have a different hold upon you. Um, and then the third distinction he makes is the difference between momentous and trivial options in belief. 
So some things have profound effect upon your life. Um, your, your choice of whether to believe in them is a profound effect upon you. And some things have a total trivial effect. And they can be reversed. They don't affect you long term. They're not unique. And the example James uses for this is, uh, I think, a, a time when he was invited to go on an expedition to the North Pole with a fellow academic. And the idea of doing that for a long-term study would drastically change your life, right? Um, mm. So you kind of, it's a momentous decision, right? If you choose it or don't choose it, you're changing your life forever, basically. Um, and there's some things that are totally trivial and don't matter, right? Like, you know, um, what are you going to have for lunch today or something? Um, and so all these things, all these distinctions that he's making in belief are trying to get at the nature uh, of why we can't just treat all different options for belief or objects of belief as being equal. Whereas he thinks the sort of scientific picture focuses almost solely on the avoidable and the trivial. By nature, it's things where you have to, because of the scientific method, wait for the evidence to come. And that's proper to the scientific method, James thinks. But for that reason, it's only going to focus on the avoidable and the trivial. Right, the things where you can delay whether or not you um, decide upon them. And James's point is, that's all well and good for science, right? But in many areas in life, that won't do. You can't hold back your belief. There are momentous decisions and forced ones that you have to make. Hmm. And so he thinks uh, religious belief is this way. Um, hmm. I said at the beginning of the episode that the question isn't more important to avoid error or to be open to truth. And James's answer is, well, depends on the situation, right? In science, it's more important to avoid error, and that's correct. But in matters of, um, in more practical matters of life, especially in religion, it's more important to be open to truth because you're not going to have sufficient evidence ever to assent to a particular belief. Um, so if you're constantly holding the scientific um ideological perspective you're just never going to believe anything which if that's what you want to do it's fine that's your choice but you're going to miss out on an entire um area of you know human experience and human life and he likens it to something like uh what would you do in matters of like love right? romantic love if you constantly wait for somebody else to prove to you that they love you well you'll never actually love anybody right you kind of have to push yourself out a little bit and make yourself vulnerable um, to begin loving somebody, right? You can't just wait for the evidence that someone unconditionally loves you. Like, you'll never get it, right? Mm. Or at least by the time you get it, that person will have left because they'll be too frustrated with you, right? Um, right? So he thinks that that's a situation where you can't just wait to avoid error. You have to be open to making mistakes, to getting things wrong. Um, and so the ultimate point is James wants to say, there are certain situations where avoiding error is the best epistemological method. Um, but there's some areas where it's not. And where being open to truth is more important. And only you can decide um, which areas one method's more important or more realistic and better to be used than the other. But then you have to decide that. There's ultimately like a, a decisional um, factor at play here. And so James wants us to kind of take responsibility for which of those decisions we make and not just assume that one or the other is always, um, always best in any situation. Is there a sense in which when you are seeking to avoid error, that there's a, a way that you could say that you're trying to avoid maybe like an active error, but that in that state of suspension, you are actually making a type of error, that ignorance is a type of error, right? It is a, 
um, a lack of fulfilling in the gaps that you are seeking to fulfill in the other areas of your investigation that might be filled in, right? Are you talking in the in the scientific context or in the yeah, more practical in the scientific context? context? Okay, can you give an example? I'm not sure what you're going for. I'm trying to think. So it's like if you're running an experiment and you've got like a laser and the laser is doing its thing and it's working fine, but you have a hypothesis that it could potentially do something else, but you're not going to like report those findings because you don't have the evidence on it yet. In that moment of in like uh, uncertainty, you don't know if your hypothesis of what this laser could be doing is going to match. But nevertheless, you still have an inkling that it might, that there is still a sense in which you are in a state of error. It might not be active error. Like you are still withholding your judgment because you're kind of like, eh, we're not really sure yet. So we can't make our final assessment and issue our report or write our paper or whatever is submitted to the journal. But nevertheless, you're still existing in like a suspended state where it's kind of like a passive error rather than an active error. Well, here, let me give an example that I think illustrates the point I think you're getting at and tell me if we're getting at the same thing. Okay. So James even kind of makes this point um, subtly that he thinks even science in certain areas has to have this will to believe, has to um, sort of ditch its avoidance of error epistemic principle and go for the open to truth one. Um, so it's, it's kind of classically told when you hear the story about Copernicus and the geocentric model of the, of the solar system being overturned for the heliocentric model that Copernicus had the better theory and that's uh, the more explanatory and more simple theory and that the sort of Catholic church and other powers that be just um, sort of repressed it because they were authoritarian assholes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the scientific way that that's presented, but it's, I think historically untrue. Um, Copernicus had a simpler theory, but he did not have a more explanatory theory. His theory had massive explanatory gaps because he didn't have telescopes yet. Right until Galileo comes along and Galileo, confirm a yeah. lot of this stuff. So Copernicus didn't have the better evidence, actually. Um, so I think some other I read before that some people try to justify the fact that um, the sort of establishment uh, cosmologists at the time were correct to reject Copernicus. He didn't mm. have a better theory. Um, now, should they have been more open to the idea that eventually he'd have a better theory? Perhaps, right? But Copernicus sort of had a have some faith, right? He had to say, you know what? Something just seems wrong about this geocentric model. Mm-hmm. And my theory is simpler, even though I have very little evidence for it. So you know what? I'm just going to dedicate my my life to figuring this out, even though I don't really have good evidence that it's true. Um, and the geocentric model had, you know, millennia worth of evidence built up to justify its kind of, you know, wacky hypotheses. Um, so yeah, there's an idea there that even in science, Oftentimes, when a new uh, kind of broad theory comes along, it's not going to have all the evidence that a previous, you know, more established theory is going to have. And sometimes you got to just act on faith and say, you know what, I got to work on this because if I don't, even if I let the evidence tell me not to work on this new theory, I'll never actually know if the new theory yeah, has any. And problems. there's something going on in that scientific impetus to investigate further that is a type of belief. Right mm-hmm. now, it may yeah. not be intellectual assent, but there's something driving. I really love when William James talks about living in dead beliefs. I think that's an I I think that's a wonderful sort of 
it might, it might not even be a metaphor. It might be quite literal. But there's a sense in which there are potencies that are like simmering, right? And they bubble at different temperatures and they bubble to varying degrees of intensity and they show themselves and are manifest to varying degrees of intensity. But there's a sense in which in order to drive the inductive approach or to drive the scientific investigation, there has to be something that is alive even if you don't really have all the facts to intellectually assent to the conclusion, right? So there's something going on. Even if it's germinal or nascent, it's bubbling and it's alive to an extent. It may not be fully expressed and articulated, and you may not feel comfortable in publishing the paper, at which point then Clifford's sufficient reason standard might kind of come to fruition. But nevertheless, there's already a sense in which there is a Maybe it's a will to believe that is taking place, but just maybe at a different level of intensity, right? Yeah, that's exactly James's point, is that yeah. the whole project of scientific discovery couldn't get off the ground without this underlying will to believe. And that mm. sort of the changes, to use like the, the Kuhn-Kuhnian term, right? Um, the scientific revolutions couldn't occur if someone or some groups of people didn't just have a quote-unquote irrational belief that they're... Um, new uh, scientific paradigm was better than the currently existing one, even if it's not better because of evidence. It's better because, you know, the explanatory power is not there, but the simplicity is there. And you know what? I'm just going to go with that, even though it's not sufficient evidence by itself. Hmm. And that's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a rosy, maybe too simplistic picture of scientific revolutions and discovery, right? Um, but that I think that's not necessarily a, 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 like ultimate exhaustive knock against it because... The idea there's simply that, structurally speaking, um, you couldn't have these revolutions, scientific revolutions, if not for some some push from the voluntary side against the sufficient evidence side, um, because the established theory is just gonna, by definition, have more evidence for it than anything new. Mm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, religious belief. Yeah, that's the big one, right? Um, yeah. How do you apply this religious belief in a way that doesn't just give carte blanche to believe anything? Like a fideism or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's certainly an accusation that's been leveled against James. Fideism basically being the idea of like faith alone, right? That there's sort of faith in reason or faith in evidence are completely divorced. Um, even maybe to the point where faith should be against the evidence. I kind of think like Kierkegaard <laughs> would say somewhat 25% ironically. Um, that you should believe against the evidence. That's the only true faith, hmm. which to some people sounds like complete insanity, right? Right, right, right. Now he says that uh, that that the religious option is a forced option, right? Right. To not well, choose is to choose. <laughs> okay. Can you explain why he? Why does he say that that's the case? So, like, how is it that 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 you can kind of be shoehorned into either choosing or not choosing. Not choosing is choosing. Choosing is choosing. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's kind of pithy, right? Uh, to not choose is to choose. But what does that mean? Well, what that means is the religious option, James thinks, is is the category or belongs to the category of choices where you don't simply have the option of waiting around to see if evidence will come. Because he thinks kind of by definition is not going to come. If, it, if evidence came, it wouldn't be religion anymore. It'd be science, right? So, um, or whatever the, the object of the religious devotion or belief is would be a scientific question, no longer a religious question is the idea there. So 
religion by its nature is going to be something that you're never going to have sufficient evidence for by definition. Now, you could use the scientific um, epistemic principle there and just say, well, in that case, I'm just going to avoid error as much as possible and not believe anything. But James thinks what that is, is basically refusing the option, um, the religious option. You're basically refusing, uh, you're just choosing no, basically at that point, right? It's the same thing as choosing no, uh, which is fine. James is totally fine if you do that, right? But then he just wants people to be authentic and to acknowledge the fact that you're not really being an agnostic. You're not really just delaying the choice. <laughs> you're just saying no, because you're never going to get the evidence you're looking for, right? That's why he likens it to the romantic picture, which I think is really illustrative, right? Saying something like, well, I'll fall in love, I'll get married, I'll have a relationship or whatever, as soon as someone proves to me that they love me. Well, you're not really doing that at that point. You're just saying you're never going to love anybody, <laughs> right? Because they come to the same conclusion and you're just being a bit inauthentic about what you're actually doing. Um, so he thinks the same thing happens in the religious option. And so if you want to refuse it, that's fine, as long as you, you know, are authentic and admit that you're refusing it. Um, but then you're going to miss out on a huge, important part of human experience, James thinks. And if you want to know what he thinks about religious experience, read the infamous a beautiful book, Varieties of Religious Experience, that James wrote, which is like the foundational text in sort of religious psychology. Um, and yeah, James was you know well known for being involved in like seances and crazy <laughs> weird mystical shit. Yeah, this guy who like was the most uh, renowned philosopher uh, and psychologist at Harvard in the early 20th century. It was also like doing seances and shit. Right, America was in a different place. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that's the, that's the idea. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that you have to choose for or against. You can't just delay in the way you can delay whether or not you think the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is appropriate or whatever. So is there a sense in which we could say that to the uh, scientific empiricist, he's saying, well, hold on a second here. You're actually not always withholding your belief. There is a sense in which there's a sort of nascent will to believe that is driving you forward. And then when he looks at the religious person, he's saying, well, and not only the, not only is it true that there is always this will to believe that is kind of there, but then you ought to actually just authentically accept that and just commit yourself to a choice anyway because we're already in the act of uh, engaging in some type of, of will to believe. Is that kind of what he's getting at? Uh, can you explain that last part? Well, it's almost, it seems like he's um, he's saying when it comes to religious faith, you might as well just come down because you already are kind of coming down on either of these options. You can't escape making the choice because this is a forced option. So stop lying to yourself. Stop pretending like you're agnostic. Stop pretending like you're having an inductive approach and just kind of like come down on one of these things and recognize your authenticity. And it's almost like this almost like a, a pre-existential existentialist charge, like just commit yourself to the choice mm -hmm, and just yeah. d just choose which option, right? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that exhortation there. Okay. What about, you ever, you're familiar with Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener? Um, I'm familiar with it, I haven't read it now. Yeah, I've never read it either, but it's just one of these famous texts that philosophers really like to talk about because of the famous line that Bartleby tells to the boss, right? Which is, mm -hmm. I'd prefer not, not to. Not to, yeah. Zizek's <laughs> favorite line. Yeah. So do you think that there's room for an I'd prefer not to 
in this forced option that is supposedly being presented? Like, to me, it just seems rather convenient that William James is saying that this is a forced option for religion, but it's not a forced option for other uh, quandaries that are presented, you know? So I just wonder, like, how can we how can we really justify and solidify that religious belief is truly that forced option? Like, is there not is there not a third? Is there not the opportunity to kind of step back and be like, I'd prefer not to? Like, why is that not an authentic position? Why is that still actually making a choice? Yeah, I think the, I mean, I don't know the context of, of Melville's version, but I know like Zizek, when he uses it, the, I prefer not to use in the context of rejecting an ideologically loaded question, right? Um, and just saying, well, I kind of reject the premise in the first place, so I'm not going to answer. And that's actually a kind of, I don't know if the term authentic should be used there, but it's a kind of authentic choice because you're uh, asserting your sort of refusal of the way that the question is loaded in the first place, right? The way that it's asked, the premises underlying it. Um, and I think you can probably do that here, especially with the idea that religion has to be disambiguated, right? So what do you mean by religion? Because that can mean a whole hell of a lot of things. I think if you're going to be charitable, though, you might say, well, James has already kind of said that um, these these issues are going to be different for different people, right? Mm. Um, the 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 Indian who's you know thinking about his own Hinduism is going to be in a very different place than the you know person in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts thinking about their Protestantism or whatever, right? So um, it's going to be different for different people, right? There is a disambiguation that's going to exist at the individual level about what religion is, but everyone's going to have some um, choice between whatever live options they have in front of them, even if we don't technically call those things religion. There's going to be some live option out there that's um, not going to have sufficient evidence for it. And you're going to have to decide whether that's going to be a hurdle to you believing in it or not. Mm. So if you leave it really open like that, I think maybe it still has some force. What were you thinking? Yeah. No, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I was thinking that he kind of sets up the the paradigm in, in a kind of restrictive way and that you might be able to just reject the whole question outright the way that he establishes it, right? And that the I'd prefer not to is precisely that. It's kind of, well, I don't really accept the terms of the debate. I don't accept that this is a forced option in the first place, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, which I think on a particular level, you can probably still use that, right? So if you think that the options are um, something like evangelical Christianity or new age atheism or um, new atheism or something, right? Then you'd be like, no, I reject those. There's there's another alternative out there, right? Mm. Which would be fine. But then you still have to think about the live options regarding that. Right. Mm. So, can I read a little passage here? This is yeah, one of like the greatest passages. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, read it. This is James applying this idea to social organisms, to politics and, and social issues. He says the following. It's kind of long, but it's beautiful, so I just want to read it. A social organism of any sort, whatever, large or small, is what it is because each member proceeds to his own duty with a trust that the other members will simultaneously do theirs. Wherever a desired result is achieved by the cooperation of many independent persons, its existence is a fact, it's a pure consequence of the precursive faith in one another of those immediately concerned. A government, an army, a commercial system, a ship, a college, an athletic team, all exist on this condition, without which not only is nothing achieved, but nothing is even attempted. A whole train of passengers, individually brave enough, will be looted by a few highwaymen, simply because the latter can count on one another 
each passenger fears that if he makes a movement of resistance, he will be shot before anyone else backs him up. We believe that the whole carful would rise at once with us. We should each severally rise, and train robbing would never even be attempted. There are, mm-hmm. then, cases where a fact cannot come at all unless a preliminary faith exists in its coming, and where faith in a fact can help create the fact. That would be an insane logic, which is to say that faith running ahead of scientific evidence is the lowest kind of immorality into which a thinking being can fall. So I love the, the example of the train robbery scenario because it's so illustrative of the point he's trying to make. And then there's the famous, probably the most famous uh, passage from this whole paper, which is there are cases where a fact cannot come at all unless a preliminary faith exists in its coming. Mm. Right, which is really the controversial point and um, maybe says a little bit more than James is trying to say uh, when you take him literally. But the idea there of something cannot be the case sometimes unless you believe it's the case first. <laughs> I mean, to me, I don't find that to be controversial. I think even if you take that in a very literal and strong sense, I still don't find that to be very controversial. It seems to me that there are uncertainties um, ignorances, dogmas that we constantly carry with us that we bring into a situation that is going to be challenged and reoriented when presented with new evidence from the outside, but that nevertheless there's this constant back and forth between kind of the storehouse of memories, both the true and the false that we're always carrying with us into a given context that confront the facts of the world. And that's part of what the dialectic is in an existential dialectical reading. This is one of the things that Sartre talks about uh, in Critique of Dialectical Reason, that it is just simply that movement of uh, praxis within the material conditions. And and in that movement, you have that confrontation between the kind of limits and demands imposed by the material conditions and um, the freedom, if you will, of praxis to transform those material conditions. But also by carrying with it the habits that have um, kind of congealed onto the praxis project, which is the human in in these terms, right? And so you get this like weird convergence, uh, almost like in my mind, I'm thinking like of an elasticity of like a contraction and an expansion where they're like playing off of each other and exploding one another and changing one another and then going into different directions because they encounter one another. To me, I don't think I have a problem with that because what that means is that means that there's both error and truth um, in pretty much everything that we're doing at all times, it's just that, you know, the again, the intensity of error and the intensity of truth shifts depending on the context in which we are kind of um, confronting the, the, the project or the problem. Yeah, so I think that dialectic you're talking about between what James would call in this context faith and fact, um, which is probably too neat of a distinction, but just play with that there. Yeah. That seems to me less controversial, um, especially when applied to, uh, you know, more practical areas where belief doesn't seem to have super stringent standards on it. Um, okay. Maybe the, I think the real controversial point in this whole paper really is just the notion that this seems to imply that we can choose our beliefs or in some sense can, as the title says, will ourselves to believe something, which can then, you know, change the circumstances or change the facts, as James would say. Um, and you know, it just doesn't seem like this is a position in epistemology called doxastic voluntarism, the idea that you can sort of choose your beliefs in a certain way. And that just seems, 
for many people, completely absurd. Um, mm. I mean, a classic example that you can use for this that's really easy to see is look outside right now. If it's not raining, try and convince yourself that it's raining. Can you do it? No, you can't, right? It's not possible to make yourself believe that it's raining when you're looking outside and seeing that it's not. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine that it's raining and you yeah. could engage in the practice where you get so lost in your imagination that 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 becomes a reality in a type of imagined state. That's obviously different, but you can't know that you're imagining and also believe it, right? The only way yeah. to go from imagination to belief is to forget that you're imagining. Yeah. But at the yeah, end, yeah. the question there is, I think everyone would have to accept that you can't literally make yourself believe it's raining when you're looking at <laughs> outside and it's not raining, right? But is that really yeah. analogous to the situation that James is talking about? I think would be the question. Mm. What kind of situation would he be talking about? I mean, he's he's not talking about a situation and looking at the evidence and then believing against the evidence, right? Maybe Kierkegaard would say religion has to be that way. But I don't think James is quite going that far, right? Um, he's instead saying, look at areas where sufficient evidence either way is never going to exist, right? It'd be more like um, you live inside a cube with no windows and no doors. And so you have no idea uh, for or against if it's raining. But you have to decide because, I don't know, like you have to choose one or the other and you're going to get shot if you're wrong, <laughs> mm. right? Um so in that case, you kind of can make yourself believe. Like the, the situation becomes so fraught for you that it does kind of impel you to believe. So James's famous example, which I think is illustrative at this point, is at the very end of the essay um, where he's talking about, uh, let me find the passage. He says here, um, he's imagining someone standing on a mountain. He says, we stand on a mountain pass in the midst of whirling snow and blending mist which we get glimpses now and then of paths which may be deceptive. If we stand still, we shall be frozen to death. If we take the wrong road, we shall be dashed to pieces. We do not certainly know whether there is any right one. What must we do? Be strong and have good courage. Act for the best, hope for the best, and take what comes. If death ends all, we cannot meet death better. <laughs> that's pretty badass, right? Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great passage. The idea there being... Imagine yourself on a mountain pass. You're looking in different ways and you can't really tell where the path is. You get glimpses, but you can't be sure. You could just stand there and wait until you, a path becomes open to you, but then you'll just freeze to death. So you have to choose, right? In a circumstance like that, you, you have a forced choice, right? You just have to choose one or the other, even though one may mean your peril, right? Um, and so there's some sense psychologically with James thinks in a situation like that where you have a forced choice, you can almost there's something other than the intellect which impels you to choice now maybe it's purely maybe there's like voluntary element where you can will it maybe it's more of like an emotional thing where you're emo you're motivated by he talks um, about the passions yeah. yeah passions and sympathies um there's some kind of you know confluence there between those but um it's something other than intellect which makes the choice right if it was purely by intellect you make the choice you'd be like balaam's ass right looking at two different mm -hmm bales of hay or whatever it is and they're both equidistant and similar in size so you just stand there and starve to death because you can't choose between them i mean i guess when i read this i didn't really think of it as being um would you call it doxastic voluntarism yeah um i i didn't really think of it as being like some sort of like really active 
volitional choice where you look at the field in front of you and you can just will to believe whatever the fuck you want to believe despite the material restraints or context in which you find yourself. I kind of took it more in the existentialist sense, um, which this text seems to be a very sort of proto-existential text in a lot of ways, which is basically saying that, no, no, we always are already in the process of choosing. Like when I get dressed in the morning, even though I'm going through my daily habits and things like that, there's a sense in which I am constantly willing, if you will, to believe that the door is going to open, that when I go outside, that the weather's going to be a particular way. Even if I've looked out my window or not, I'm kind of just choosing. That there's a sense in which there's kind of like um, not a radical freedom in the sense of being decontextualized, but actually a sort of like a choosing from within size, uh, from within conditions, but nevertheless, you still are always already making decisions you are always already choosing no matter what that's kind of how i read it yeah i think that's right i don't think that he's um, offering up a really extreme voluntarism um i think he even explicitly at one point says pure voluntarism is sort of absurd although he doesn't give a very good argument for why not maybe it's why people tend, tend to think he's actually promoting a voluntarism even though he won't say it no. um yeah i think you're right that um it's it, at least charitably better read more along the lines you're talking about is, you know, um, decision and belief within radical limitation. And that that's the context in which most of our beliefs exist. And so there's some degree in which we have to make choices regarding um, how to relate to those limitations. Mm. Uh, it's it's the sim- certainly not as simple as the maxim of only believe things on sufficient evidence. Right? That, that's not a workable yeah. hypothesis for most of life. Right, right. So you said you've taught this essay multiple times to students. How do your students respond to this? What are, what are like typical questions? What are, do they kind of, do they vibe with it? Do they get it? I would think especially in this day and age where we are so inundated with like scientific rationality that I would feel like this would be met with a little bit of resistance. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes it is. Um, sometimes students who have more of like a, an agnostic orientation with religious matters will just say, yeah, there's, you know, maybe he's right when it comes to areas like politics and love and stuff like that, but there's no reason to not withhold your religious uh, dispositions until better evidence comes along. And if that never comes along, it never comes along. I'm not going to believe some bullshit just because someone tells me. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a question of whether religion should be included as one of these categories, um, mm. which is, you know, certainly, I don't think James is against that idea, right? As long as you admit that that's the choice you're making, like that's that's fine. Uh, he's certainly not going to tell you you're wrong. There's certainly not evidence that you're wrong. Um, mm. I find a lot of students really, really think that the illustrations that James gives are are great, especially regarding the train robbery one, the mountain pass one, and the idea of um, romantic relationships. Mm. Uh, they find that to be extremely uh, coherent and convincing and persuasive. Um, just because, I mean, because they are, <laughs> right? Um, there's many areas in life where there's some sense in which you have to put yourself out there and believe things on insufficient evidence for them to have any chance of coming to in the first place. And if we value those things, then we're going to value them over and above whatever epistemic standards we hold ourselves to in you know more avoidable circumstances. The basic idea being your epistemic principles change relative to the importance and the weight of the object of belief, right? Mm. Which I think is just obviously true. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you really, really want something, you'll be willing to risk more for it. Not just monetarily, but epistemically. Mm. You're willing to risk being wrong. 
if you care about something um, more so than you would if you didn't really care about it. You won't risk being wrong in that case. Yeah, it's the, the passional influences, as he calls it. In the romantic love example, is there a sense in which there's kind of a faith-seeking understanding sort of thing that he's getting at? I mean, I know he's not Catholic, but it kind of has... I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's just popping up in my mind. Is is there anything in that that there's kind of like this, well, yeah, you don't have all the information. You can't just sit back and wait to make your decision. You kind of make the commitment. You jump in in a little bit, uh, in a sense, and then you kind of learn along the way. And maybe you're going to continue to make leaps further like as you recommit yourself every morning when you wake up next to the same person or uh, every time that you don't fuck somebody else if you're in a monogamous relationship and that's your thing, right? Like there's a sense in which you are recommitting yourself in like a faithfulness that isn't the inductive reason of science, um, but that nevertheless there's a sense in which reason is still coming along. It, it might be later, it might be after the fact, and it might have a, a support role, but there's kind of a sense in which it's like commitment or belief that then leads to understanding, which then creates a different framework for new types of beliefs and new commitments and then new understandings, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you mentioned the faith seeking understanding idea. That's like a, a medieval was it Anselm that said that first. I thought it was I thought it was Aquinas, but yeah. No, one of the two. Um yeah, yeah faith seeking understanding being the idea that um faith is reasonable, but it's only reasonable sort of after you have faith, right? You have to have faith first and then the sort of uh coherence and, and rationality of the faith becomes evident to you or something like that. Yeah. Um, but only slowly, right? Not all at once. Um, and so, you know, we heard that a lot, I think, in our evangelical circles, right? Uh, if we had questions about sort of the uh, logical consistency and rationality of something in theology or in the biblical text, the mm-hmm. idea would be, you know, you have to have faith first, and then you'll be granted understanding by the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. That's super insidious um, because mm-hmm. basically it's just saying you can't have questions about these things. Just yeah. believe uh, it's basically a veiled threat, right? Totally. Um, and so that's clearly, I think, insidious. But it seems to me importantly different than what James is promoting here. While James, his position, I think, is open or leaves open that sort of more insidious usage, right? Because um, the person is going to, they're going to veil the threat, right? And the veil itself is not sort of superficially insidious. Right. Um, it's only sort of the context which makes it so, right? Um, yeah, I think James has to be just say like that's gonna you're gonna be wrong sometimes, right? <laughs> like you're you're being more open to error. So what follows from that is sometimes you're you're gonna err more than you would otherwise. Um, but you have to decide whether it's worth it. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's you know James's position here leaves open that problem. Um, but I think mm. his position would be yeah, but that's probably better than um, being completely closed off from all of these possibilities in the first place. Mm. Yeah, so I, have, I, have, what, I have a question. Go ahead. Then. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I find uh, this essay to be fairly persuasive and convincing. I think the sort of criticisms of it are often sort of correct on a theoretical level, um, but don't really get to the heart of what James is arguing for. And a more charitable reading of, of the essay is is certainly more convincing than uh, its critics would often um, allow. That said, if you think that, um, why not believe then? Wait, say that again? If you think that, like, and do, you, you, do you find this essay to be fairly convincing in its general point? Yeah. 
If so, why not believe then? Because both of us left our um, uh-huh. the the living option. Like we had a choice at some point in our early adult lives about staying with the live option we had been accustomed to and were comfortable with, and leaving for another live option, or maybe leaving to find another live option. Um, we both did in some sense, and we haven't completely left uh, the previous um, sort of you know world, but have sort of at least in terms of membership disassociated ourselves so what happened there did we were we not open to open to uh, truth well see that's the thing is i'm not sure that we have left i just think that belief alters it alters its form right so isn't it a little bit too restrictive to say it has to either be the confessional church or nothing but to think of belief as 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 morphing and transforming and deepening. I mean, I would say that in a sense, like I have deeper commitments to belief now that are still rooted in that it's almost like that there's almost like this weird processual connection that you could even and I know that my more conservative Christian friends would think this is just fucking ridiculous, but it's almost like that was the the bud to the flower that I am now experiencing, you know, or maybe the pollen that's been, you know, spit out from the flower or whatever. But, but I mean, I still do believe, right? It's just, what is yeah, the content? Else, <laughs> yeah, what is the object of belief? Right, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's not an issue that I'm getting at. I think the issue I'm getting at is like evangelical Christianity as a um, sort of system of beliefs and practices, or whatever you want to term it as. Right. Uh, that was once a live option for both of us. And um, it was the option that we had chosen and then it wasn't. And yeah, sure. There was a, a gradual slow evolution. It wasn't just a binary um, choice there, but there was some sense in which it's different now than it was then. Um, but does he mean, but does he specifically mean that like, does when he says that religious belief is this forced option, isn't it more of just like this kind of like, macro thing rather than a micro thing like it isn't just the individual like the live option of evangelical belief it's more just kind of like that that's like a a particular variety of the larger religious expression but that if there's still a sense in which there is yeah a, a a belief that is being expressed then it doesn't actually like violate what he's articulating here right oh sure it's different relative to different people's experiences right but for yeah. us personally, like, you know, being a Taoist was never a live option for me. Being evangelical <laughs> was, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, at some point, had to make the choice whether I was going to um, still commit myself um, to that life. Not just mm-hmm. belief, but to the whole life, you know, revolving around that. Um, and while I certainly wouldn't say that I just ditched all that and became the opposite, that's, I think, also disingenuous, right? We're all still um, colored by the different contexts, belief contexts and practical contexts with which we existed. Um, there's some sense in which a, a, a choice was made there. Maybe not momentary, maybe not, you know, temporally isolated. It was over a long period of time. Um, and there was sort of a dialectical uh, change that happened there. But if you look at it in the grand scale of things, there was a radical change, right? Um, and so I have to think to myself, like, was I not being open to truth in that scenario or is there some other reason 
um, important reason why you can reject a live option um, other than, say, just to avoid error. And I think that's really the point, right? If you refuse a live option just because you want to avoid error, right? Because you have some like new scientific epistemic principle that you're abiding by. Um, that's sort of disingenuous, right? Because that scientific principle itself is something you believe in, in part on faith. Um, if there's some other reason why you reject it, like say moral reasons, right? Then that's actually rejecting it via another live option, which you maybe don't hmm. have sufficient evidence for, right? Um, and I think that better describes why I think most people leave American evangelical Christianity, right? Um, mm. At least the institutions uh, where those things exist is because they find some important moral inconsistency with it. Um, mm. And that sort of fuels and motivates um, the change that happens. And that seems to me like one live option over another, which is more in line with uh, what James is talking about. It's not this kind of uh, disingenuous, well, you know, I just don't know if I can really believe these things because there's not enough evidence for me to assent to it. So I'm going to withhold my decision until the words. Mm. Like no one can ever do that. You can't do that with a with a live option, right? You can only do that with a dead option. You know, I'll believe that the that the Hindu gods are real when like Shiva comes down and talks to me, right? You can say that about a dead option, um, but you can't say that about a live option. What do you think about, though, that I kind of had that weird ecstatic experience where I thought demons were taking over my soul, and that was like the thing that triggered my belief. Like, it was an instantaneous thing, right? It wasn't slow building. Now, granted, I did have exposure to the church, so maybe there were doubts and things going on in my in my psyche that set the ground for that event. But that was a singular moment. I wasn't, see, I mean, I wasn't consciously seeking religious fulfillment. It just kind of happened. It was this crazy, stark event, right? So what you're saying is when James is describing the guy in the mountain pass, the guy's actually in a K-hole experience? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean... I don't know. I don't know. The one thing that I thought a lot about when I was reading this was I just thought about the nature of, of the things that I believe and the things that I still struggle with. I think I mentioned this a few episodes ago. I don't remember which episode it was, but it's like there are certain things that I still believe sometimes, like even like certain dogmas that it's like I can't intellectually in the depths of my thoughts, I can't entirely deny sometimes, you know, I'm like, fuck, what if like, there are those times and those quiet moments where I still believe and not just, oh God, I hope that this is the case, but no, like, shoot, man, I, it's got to be it, right? It's got to be that. It, it, it has to be the case that he literally rose from the grave on the third day kind of thing, right? Like those thoughts sometimes do hit me like a ton of bricks. And um, You just keep reading uh, N.T. Wright's giant book on the resurrection, haven't you? The resurrection of the son of God. Yeah, all a thousand that, pages that of it. Big, that big green beast. I actually read that whole thing uh, at Masters. <laughs> um, but um, but no, that the, those things do hit me. And so I thought a lot about like the nature of belief. It's like this idea of the will to believe in the way that I was articulating it about the sort of like within the conditions that aren't of our own choosing, the sort of more existentialist way rather than the voluntarist way is interesting because I. I 
I, I kind of buy that argument in the essay more. But this idea of, of belief as being this spontaneous thing that's out of our control is something that I'd almost want to explore more. You know, that like, how do beliefs arise in the first place? I'm not sure that it's because, you know, I'm looking at this piece and that piece and this piece and connecting them. Yeah, sure, that might happen. And over time, then I might be able to recognize what a triangle is because I see how they formulate and I recognize the pattern or whatever, right? But um, like other things, like, do I believe that my father is a trustworthy man? I do. Is it just simply because of evidence or is there something else? I mean, yeah, part of it is because of evidence. Um, but is there that kind of like passional, spontaneous, maybe we would say irrational or non-rational component that is part and parcel of all belief formation, even maybe in the analytical belief formations, that there is something irrational going on there as well that is constitutive in the activity of solidifying a belief. Or at least non-rational, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, which I think is super important, right? I think the the best way to read this is just like you're saying, we belief is largely a thing that you just find yourself, a state you find yeah. yourself in. You're just fucking um, in it, and then you have to like justify it almost afterwards. Yeah, and so you have a decision, right? You have a decision about how you're going to deal with that fact that you just find yourself in these belief states. Um, do you just constitutively reject all of them, um, <laughs> unless they hold some epistemic standard? In which case, James thinks it's just unworkable in life. No one can really do that. So you're being inauthentic or disingenuous in some way. Or are you going to say, I have to make some principled, important decisions about how I react to all these belief states I find myself in? And really, generally speaking, I think that's what James is kind of saying is the only really authentic way to live is to admit that we most of our beliefs are not rationally based and that that's not the end of the world. <laughs> You yeah. don't have to sort of uphold some absurd standard or hold our beliefs up to some absurd standard because science says so. We have to have a more workable way of dealing with these things, uh, which isn't just pure acceptance of all your beliefs, right? Prima facie or, you know, basically fideism, but it's also not the opposite, which is this, uh, you know, kind of extreme epistemic standard of believe things only on sufficient evidence. So what's the workable in between? Well, it's, it's something like um, considering options in this way. And acting mm -hmm. accordingly. So yeah, there's some sense we, we we have to respond to the beliefs we find ourselves in, and we need some sort of workable hypothesis for how to react to those situations. Yeah, I think the psychoanalytic critique of this would be that that whenever we're responding to those beliefs in which we find ourselves, there's always a sense in which we're lying to ourselves about why we're in that position or why yeah. we're in those beliefs. Right? There's always oh, yeah. a misrecognition of the let's say the genealogy that justifies that belief or that explains or that rationalizes how we got to that belief because we could always be like well i believe this because of this this even when people ask me like why did you leave the church i always kind of hesitate for a second because i'm like i don't know how honest of an answer i can actually give you i can say <laughs> i had this personal thing because this relationship that i was in and this thing with this father and then i noticed the fear that christians had and then there was all this you know this lies about or let's just say um misrepresentations of what the postmodern was and so there was an intellectual thing and then i read this book by nt wright and then i was reading the greek and the new testament and i blah, 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 blah. i could give you all of these like this biography right but i don't really know how honestly true it is that those are the reasons why i am where i am today right? There's always a misrecognition. There's always a sort of fabrication or a fabulation of 
my own narrative. I don't know. Yeah, and so the dark side of this whole thing here is if it's the case that beliefs are just things we states we find ourselves in, then doesn't that mean that most of our rationalizations after the fact about why we believe what we believe are yeah. just that, fabrications, such that whatever new beliefs you find yourself in are not going to be the result of your rationalizations. They're going to be a result of some other random you know, circumstances or whatever. Like I'm thinking about my own um, process of leaving the church. And that was, I think, in large part because of this sort of you know, moral inconsistencies that I saw in the system and experiences that I had that negatively affected my view of the church. And it's like you, like you reading the Greek and looking at how um, narrow uh, of an interpretation that, you know, my own version of evangelicalism was giving to the scriptures and stuff like that. But how much of it was that? How much of it was like I left and moved to Scotland and didn't have the sort of social um, mm. influence on me that I, previously it had right now i think it was all happening long before that um but you know how much did that tip me off the edge yeah, so, and how much of it that i just wanted to fuck randos you know <laughs> like i think a, you could have found a way around that dude yeah well you know missionary um, dating that was your thing right <laughs> that's right date to save <laughs> yeah i wonder that all the time I wonder that all the time. I mean, not the, the fuck randos thing, but no, but really like th- that's kind of in jest, but that's kind of serious. Like how much uh, is just like, oh, I just didn't want to be involved in that anymore. Or I do like what you said. How much of it is just that you just didn't have the, the constant social support network to hold you up anymore. Um, or that people let you kind of go and that there's a sense in which there's like a lost, um, almost like a disappointment. That, that you didn't feel that connection, that it didn't it didn't transcend distance, which it should have, right? So maybe there's a sense in which that kind of disappoints you and that there's a thousand or a million things that all kind of converge to create a big belief bomb or unbelief bomb. Yeah, there's like a an almost an, an epistemological suicide that happens when you go down this road. Where if you fully accept the implications of it, you almost can't really rationally believe anything, um, which is not the you know result you want to have. But uh, there has to be some give and take between like the psychoanalytic critique and um, some degree of voluntarism or mm. you know choice over or control over um, your beliefs and identity even. But uh, yeah, where that line is drawn and how that balances plays out is is difficult. Yeah, it is. It, you know what's weird? For some reason in my mind, I'm almost imagining like a click. It's like where that line is drawn. It's almost like in, in that moment of that click where it switches over, there's an infinite gap, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that that infinite gap is where the interesting theorization occurs. And and maybe we just can't articulate it right now, but that there is some there's something where all of a sudden it just clicks over. But in that click, there's an infinity. And Kierkegaard would say, over that infinite gap, you must leap. Booyah. Does James interact with Kierkegaard much? I don't know if he does, actually. Mm. I, th- I thought about that question before, and I'm sure I've looked it up, but I don't remember. It's been a while since I did philosophy of religion in any yeah. really systematic way. Okay. Well, listeners out there, if you happen to know... I, I don't of... think he was translated into English by that time, and I doubt that James knew Danish, so... Yeah. Kierkegaard. Yeah, if okay. anyone out there knows, though, yeah. let us know. 
definitely let us know. That's interesting. Well, sweet man, I've never read this essay. Um, to my shame, the only William James that I've really read are like in little excerpts and stuff that we've done on this show. Oh, good. So, yeah, this is certainly a, a nice little introduction. He's got to be one of the greatest writers in philosophy, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, it's, it's extremely well written. The anecdotes are great. Uh, it's really quite rigorous for you know a lecture that's you know, 15 pages or whatever it is. Um, I was actually surprised with the rigor. I kind of thought it was going to... Maybe it was just because I'm so used to the blog post that we basically read last week by Lowenberg. <laughs> I was expecting that this was going to be... Um, kind of similarly fluffy, but it wasn't. It was it was actually quite um quite quite rigorous. Definitely yeah. more than I was expecting. Yeah, I think even though I don't agree with James on a lot philosophically outside of um the areas and like religious epistemology and stuff, uh, I think that he's a great example of the kind of writing that academics should strive to do. Uh, in terms of balancing, you know, academic rigor with uh writing flourishes and you know, things that can actually grab your attention and, and seep themselves in your memory in a way that's helpful. Mm. Sick man. Well, thank you once again for a wonderful recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Should we move on to the sticky leaves? Let's do it, dude. All right. So the sticky lays segment of the show is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's granting us a meaningful existence in this possibly meaningless world. So, Austin, what's a live option for you today? So, when I was preparing to go into surgery, we weren't sure if I was going to have to have the surgery or not. It was kind of up in the air. We were waiting to see how my lung was healing. Was it not healing on its own? I had this chest drain thing in. And so, you know, there's that that moment where you're not sure. And so, you know, I'm obviously keeping my family informed of everything that's happening and my mom is like well I'm gonna come out there uh, if you go into surgery and I'm you know trying to be like the tough dude and I'm like nah I don't worry about it mom it's not that big of a deal blah, blah, whatever she's like no I'm coming I'm like okay whatever so I finally caved um but I didn't know for sure if it was gonna happen well I found out like Monday that I was gonna have the surgery Tuesday and they basically just gave me an open window they were like it'll be Tuesday afternoon so I then told my mom that it looks like it's gonna happen tomorrow so she then got on a plane from LA and flew direct to Sydney and got here the night of my surgery. So after I had already, I'd just gotten out of surgery, she arrived like late that night or early the next morning, basically. Um, and straight to the hospital and, uh, you know, it was great to see her. It was actually, oddly enough, it was kind of like the perfect holiday. She got to come here and spend time with me in the hospital, but then she's not going to sit there you know, for 24 hours. So I was like, oh, go and explore and go walk around the town. And she had an amazing time wandering around the city, meeting people. Well, one of the things she did when she was wandering around is that she went to a lot of like farmer's markets or she went to a lot of like these hippie, natural, all natural food stores. And then she bought me all kinds of stuff. And so what she did is she basically redecorated my room and my bathroom for me. So when I came out of the hospital, I had like smelly candles and I had new curtains and I had new towels for the bathroom and new floor mats and all kinds of new stuff, right? But my favorite thing that she got me is what my sticky leaves is. She got me a jar of bone broth. Have you <laughs> eaten bone broth, Troy? I still have not, no. It's quite the fab these days, though, yeah? That's the thing, man. So my mom is all into her like natural 
things, her health things, her skincare regimens, her exercise things, whatever. And so she got me this bone broth and she's like, you got to eat your bone broth. And she got me other stuff too, like a bag of pea protein and like these walnuts and some almonds, all kinds of like healthy food stuffs, right? But the bone broth thing. So I was like, all right, I, I watch this YouTube channel every once in a while from a, a guy named Dr. Axe, who uh, is like a, uh, I think he's whatever his degree is and it's in like ancient nutrition or some shit like that. So he's all about <laughs> these like holistic homeopathic cures um or what would you call them like preemptive dietary regimes i guess you would say so intermittent fasting and um you know taking in all kinds of vitamin stuff and whatever but bone broth is one of the huge ones probiotics stuff like that but bone broth is huge because it's really rich in collagen it's really rich in protein and apparently it's extremely good for your gut. And so I've been doing it. And then I also read an article that if you take your bone broth and you use it as a supplement instead of drinking coffee, that it can actually be a very good natural booster for energy. It won't give you the coffee jitters. Um, and at the same time, you get all the great protein and collagen benefits and everything else that you get. And it's about 40 or 50 calories for every little thing. So what I've been doing is I've been basically just drinking bone broth like tea as my coffee. <laughs> every day and it's been great man i fucking love it first of all it tastes really good and so it's not it was getting warm here but this week it's been kind of cold so it's actually been really nice to have this nice bone brothy kind of soupy tea thing that i've been drinking uh, instead of a cup of coffee and you don't get the jitters and it still gives you nice energy and whether or not it's a placebo i don't give a fuck because i feel like i'm treating my body well and so i feel like a goddamn king after i take it so that's what i mean. I tried it a couple of times i put it in my morning smoothie i have a green smoothie in the morning but the green smoothie tastes so good my green smoothie is so good i put that organic peanut butter with hemp seeds i got my kiwi and my kale and my spinach and then i put in some frozen bananas and blueberries that scoop of peanut butter and then i put in my hemp protein with a little bit of chocolate cacao Ooh, the flavor is perfect and then you put in bone broth the bone broth fucking ruins that sweet beautiful <laughs> candy of a breakfast so so i can't do that anymore because i that's like my favorite part of the day is when i get to drink that beautiful green smoothie but so instead of putting it in my smoothie and ruining the flavor of that i've just been drinking it like a tea and it's been fucking fantastic man i feel great i feel like a superhero as much you as i can it? with Having, instead of coffee or go, just instead of tea? I, I mean, I just drink it like a tea. So it's a substitute for coffee. So I don't drink the coffee anymore. I'm just drinking the bone broth. And I'm going to see how long it lasts. I'm, I've done it for like about a week so far, and it's been great. I feel great. So okay. it's giving no, me energy. I, yeah. I appreciate the thematic consistency here with the idea of you don't need to know whether or not it's placebo. I don't sometimes, really care. Sometimes you just got to will to believe, man. I'm choosing to believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I am choosing to believe. But um, but also, I think it tastes really good, too. It doesn't taste good in the smoothie, but then again, I wouldn't put a fucking steak in my... And I like steak, and I wouldn't put unagi sushi in my green smoothie either, right? So it's not the bone broth's fault that the smoothie tastes gross. It's just that that particular sweet and savory isn't quite right. But uh, yeah, man, so it's really what good. What exactly is bone broth? Well, I believe... It's broth from bones. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean, though? <laughs> I don't really know, man. I, I think I, th 
in my mind, this is what I think it is. In my mind, I think it's, <laughs> this is what I picture. Like, shit you not, this is what I picture. I picture that, like, in a slaughterhouse, they just pile up all the bones. Like, think like the elephant graveyard from Lion King. And then they just take the bones and they grind them up into a powder. That's what I picture. I'm sure that's not what it is. But that's what I picture and that it's, like, just bone marrow. I like that you chose the, the graveyard from Lion King because I was exactly thinking that too. And I bet you everybody <laughs> who was a kid in the 90s, that was such a traumatic experience seeing that graveyard. <laughs> that become totally. like embedded in your mind forever as what like death looks like, like mass death looks like that. Not the Holocaust. No, it's like the Lion King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The elephant graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> and then now I'm using it as a dietary supplement. So no, I don't really know what so it is. is. I know it's vegan. It's not vegan. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. It's definitely not vegan. Um, I mean, you, they do have like vegetable broth, but I mean, it's kind of like a soupy thing, right? You can you can buy those little tablets of broth and stuff, like like vegetable broth, chicken broth. I think chicken broth is a type of bone broth, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I don't I know either. I just wonder if like, since the bones are already there, if you can, if there's like a sense in which you can argue it's, it's still vegan. As long as you don't kill the animal for the bones, right? Is there some sense in which veganism can escape the like teleological sense in which the animal is slaughtered for its meat? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're like, well, shoot, the the animal was already slaughtered for other purposes. We might as well not let it go to waste, right? So we might as yeah. well use the bones for our broth. No. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be hard to make that argument, though. I think. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's <laughs> a very very good argument. No. Yeah. So, well, and apparently, and I didn't know this, but, you know, a homie on Twitter pointed this out to me, that apparently people drink bone broth because it's nutritionally sustainable because, like I said before, like one serving has about 40 to 50 calories and about 10 grams of protein. But at the same time, it also keeps you like at the bare minimum if you want to engage in a long-term fast so that your body is still, um, still burning fat. Right, and that it's not burning uh, sugars. So that's kind of interesting. I did not know that before. I did not know that you could do that. So if you do like a four or five day fast, I guess some people will actually drink bone broth to just kind of give them a little something, something, so that they have some energy, so that they're not completely empty, mm. running on empty. Interesting. I did I not know, know that. I know athletes use it a lot. Do they? Yeah. I think Kobe Bryant was a big bone broth guy in the early days. Ah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's loaded in protein, um, loaded in collagen, so it's going to be good for your skin, your hair, your nails, stuff like that. But it's um, also just incredibly healthy for your gut, for gut health. And that's one of the things that's one of the things that is becoming like all the rage in holistic medicine is really kind of probiotics. Gut, you know, everyone's gut biome health, yeah. Gut biome health, yeah. So what do you everyone's think about drinking apple cider vinegar. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done it. Um, I think I think in order like the problem is is I I didn't stick to my routine all that well. My idea was is that I was gonna do like uh, like a like a a tablespoon or whatever in a glass every day just in the morning as kind of like a start my day kind of thing. Um, and I don't mind it. I like the flavor. It feels like I'm doing something healthy. The question is, I don't know if I actually saw any benefits, but I don't know if I did it long enough. And then I've done it a couple of times when I started to feel sick, like a cold. Like I used it like some people would use an emergency or one of those. What are the other ones called? Um, not a, There's the, the vitamin C tablets. There's emergency and then, oh, the fucking other one, whatever it's called. Uh, airborne. 
That's what I was thinking. You know, where you just, you kind of load up on that when you're starting to feel a cold. That's pseudoscience, though, I've heard. I'm sure it is. I mean, I've heard that our bodies can't even metabolize that much vitamin C. But anyway, um, you just kind of piss it all out. But yeah, yeah, so I've done. It's destructive and makes you like constipated and shit. Oh, does it? Oh, oops. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've done it in that way. It happens with apple cider vinegar. That stuff makes you regular, man. Does it? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I do it every morning. Oh, do you still? Yeah. Oh, see, I am always really regular anyway, so I have never really had that as an issue. That's but okay, thing. if you're already eating really well, maybe you don't yeah. see as much of a difference. Yeah, okay. I can see that. Yeah, how long have you been doing it every morning? Uh, maybe a year, year and a half. Oh, sh- like oh shit, so you've been pretty consistent with it. Oh, yeah, I do it every morning. It's Once you start doing it, I feel like you almost can't stop just because I noticed differences immediately. You did. Have you, have you yeah. missed like a few days at all? Um, yeah, I think like when I traveled, um, I did like that road trip a couple months ago. Mm. Um, I don't think I did it then. And I definitely noticed a difference, although it's hard to, to tie that difference to not having the apple cider vinegar, seeing as there were so many other circumstances that were stressing me the fuck out. (laughs) So who knows what was causing whatever issues were happening. I love that we're not talking about this on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is the poop episode. We never actually say it. (laughs) Indirectly. I was backed up. Well, yeah. No, yeah. That's actually a good reminder, man. I've got to go to the store tomorrow anyway and load up on a couple of things. So maybe I'll get some apple cider vinegar and I'll report back in like a month or something like that and see how I'm feeling. It could be a... Maybe I'll try this bone broth thing too. How how expensive is it? Well, my mom got it for me. Ah, okay. Enough for the last several weeks? Oh, yeah. So it's this awesome jar that she got me and I just put like a, a teaspoon into a cup with some hot water and then mix it around. Boom. I got my bone broth tea. Ah, okay. No, you can. My, I was talking with my housemate who's, he's a bodybuilder and he's like, dude, he's like, if you want to, he's like, when you're cooking vegetables or something like that, you can just add a little, like you steam your vegetables, just add a little water, throw in the bone broth in there. And then it actually adds a nice flavor to the vegetables too. So hmm. you can take it in a bunch of different ways. I kind of just, there's something, there's something about like just chucking it down my throat directly <laughs> that feels, feels like it's healthy. doing more damage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. It's probably stupid, but yeah. No, I mean, there could be that steaming. It also a lot of things that are liquid in nature. Once you steam them, it loses a lot of its medicinal properties. Mm. I don't know if that happens with bone broth, but yeah, maybe. Yeah, I have no idea. So, but yeah, man, bone broth. I love it. And you know, just my mom took care of her baby boy. It was kind of sweet. I thought it was yeah, so funny. I want to believe that your sticky leaves is your mom, not bone broth. Yeah, it's that my mom got me my bone broth. So I actually, you hear that? That is a bag of uh, fresh almonds that she got me from this place that has like all these fresh nuts and shit. She just got me all kinds of good stuff. Nice. I know. Thanks, mom. You helped me. Well, now I'm going to get in trouble because my mom was not my sticky leaves last time. So I'll have to make up a reason why. (laughs) I mean, not make up a reason. Acknowledge the reason why my mom was my sticky leaves. Yeah, that's right. You better correct yourself. Uh, all right sweet we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of owls at dawn as we said at the top of the show if you find value in what we're producing please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn chuck a couple of bucks our way every month it'll really free us up we're actually going to make a much more um concerted effort to 
ramp up some of the activities on this podcast um, with regards to producing more bonus content, getting more guests on, being more consistent with release dates. I know we've said this in the past. We've actually been really good over the past like year and a half, I'd say, um, but I'm going to be doing even more. Uh, I had kind of like moments of inspiration when I was in the hospital bed, and I started to think about the things that were important to me and the things that I wanted to invest my energy in. And this podcast is one of the things that I'm not going to be cutting out of my life, but that I'm going to be investing more time and thought into. So um, going over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn will give us the resources that will allow us to spend more time on these things so that I don't have to be spending too much time on other stuff to bring in extra income and things like that. So uh, yeah, that's one thing. Also... Just another quick little thing related to this. We have a fun like, design that's going to be coming out. So we've got an artist also, that's going to be designing. That? Well, <laughs> I won't say too much. I'm just going to say that we have a new design. We, we're working on a new logo. I won't say what. I won't say who. I won't say when. But we will have a new logo. We are in the process of designing a new logo. So that's exciting, right? Yeah, I'll just say that my, um, my offer uh, for this was an owl uh, dunking like Michael Jordan. Like the Nike logo, but Austin wasn't done with that. So if you're if you would prefer my logo, then just I'm a Reebok guy now on Twitter. What can I say, Reebok? You know, yeah, just just cast it. Right? That's right. Uh, so yeah, so we got some exciting stuff coming, and I mean, I guess we could probably say it. We're hopefully going to then start with, with this new logo. Then that means maybe producing even some merch, like mugs, stickers, things like that. So it'll be rad too. The artist is fucking legit. Um, so it it'll be cool. So we'll tell you more about that as we know a little bit more. But like I said, uh, really definitely want to invest more in this podcast to make it more of a thing for y'all. And I just love doing it so much. I want to do it more and more and more and make it something that can be uh, a little bit more stable in my life. Yeah, man. Feelings totally mutual, and uh, I will also uh, try my best to. You know, get this thing going a little more. You're great, but, uh, man. No, no promises though. <laughs> it should happen sometimes, but we're gonna try. Deal. That sounds good. All right, sweet. Um, so thank you everybody for tuning in, and I think that's pretty much everything we gotta do. Unless there's anything else you feel like you gotta say, Troy. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Dasta Dani, Americana.